But I am delighted to be here today and to be able to continue the series that we have been doing uh, in the Psalms, Summer Psalms. And as you can see from the screen today, we are going to be in Psalm 14. We're going to talk about the hope of fools. And so I want to begin today by reading Psalm 14. And uh, I'm going to be reading it from the ESV. uh, And that we might honor the reading of God's Word, I would invite you to stand with me as we read all seven verses of Psalm 14. And this is what it says. It says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become... There is none who does good, not even one... Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Thank you. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, as we look around our world today, I think most of you would agree with me on this. It just seems to be so devoid of hope. Concern? Worry? Fear? Well, those things seem to run rampant, don't they? But any hope that is offered is generally laughed away as a foolish hope. But the scripture is, is clear that our hope in Christ is a solid anchor. It is a steadfast hope. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 in the CSB says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Rather than a foolish hope, it is as the title of today's message says, The Hope of Fools. And it's put on full display here for us in Psalm chapter 14. I remember an occasion many years ago when I was talking to somebody about an issue in Scripture. And I can't remember the specifics, but I remember noting the place where Scripture spoke about it. And then they asked me where else it was found in the Bible. And I said, well, as far as I know, that's the only place. And they then began to express skepticism. And they said something like, well, if that's the only place the Bible talks about it, I don't know that we can really take it to heart that much. And then I was the one who kind of became incredulous. And I said, Well, how many times does the Bible have to talk about it before it's true? Isn't once enough? And indeed, once is enough. If if it's said even one time in the Bible, that that closes the case right there. That, That makes it true. Once is enough. But when it comes to this 14th chapter of Psalms, God doesn't just speak once to this occasion. I want you to flip over to Psalm 53 this morning. I want us to take some time and also read Psalm 53 in conjunction with Psalm 14. Let me read that passage for us. I hope you have have gotten there now. This is also a mascal of David, just like Psalm chapter 14. And it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. 
for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you'll know that I just read Psalm 53. But if you're just listening, you'll be saying, oh, Mark, did you forget to turn the page? That sounds like what, exactly like what you just read. And you know why it sounds like it? Because it is. It is nearly a word-for-word repeat of Psalm 14. There's, there's some differences. There's one, one significant difference that we'll talk about here in just a little bit. But here we have Psalm 14 largely repeated for us in Psalm chapter 53. In addition, if you turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, I want to read verses 10 through 12. You'll find Paul using these verses from these psalms to make his argument about the depravity of humanity. Listen to what he says in Romans 3, 10 through 12. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we don't just have this truth once. We don't even have it twice. We have it three times Word for word in Scripture. I like what uh, James Boyce once said. He said, anything God says once demands attention. Anything he says twice demands our most intent attention. But if he says something three times, it demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. Today, as we continue this summer series in the Psalms, we, we come here to the 14th Psalm, and it is as the superscription to verse 1 says, a psalm written by King David addressed to the choir master. Now, typically, sermons from Psalm 14 uh, are something along the lines of the skeptic's song or the atheist's answer and, and those kinds of things. And indeed, this psalm does directly address the foolish unbeliever, however you want to describe him or her. But it quickly cuts through the skepticism the atheism, the agnosticism, what other, other ism you might want to consider to get to a more universal perspective of humanity. It shows us just how far short we all really do fall. But it doesn't leave us at the bottom of the ash heap to wallow in misery. It shows us that we have hope, that we have a possibility for redemption. And so today I want us to consider what God has to say about this hope through this magnificent psalm. There are three things I want you to see today. The first one I want you to notice is the fool's perspective of God. What is that perspective? Well, the text simply says there is no God. Actually, in Hebrew, the text simply says no God. No God, those first two words, there is, are supplied by the translators for clarity. This is as much an expression of practical atheism as as it is theoretical atheism that would really try to think it through and and deny the existence of God. Uh, uh, This isn't the person, this really is not describing uh, the the person who has spent a lot of time in contemplation and and come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. This this is the person, uh, quite frankly, where you see this. I know we got some college students and some some young people, young adults who are here. This is what you see in, in that generation many times. People who are raised in church, who are taught the gospel, maybe even make a profession of faith, and they go away on their own. They get out on their own, and the first thing they do is they stop living for the Lord. 
and, and they begin to just deny God's work in their life. Maybe not necessarily an intellectual, I don't think God exists, but it's just like, yeah, God has no place in my life. I have no room for God anymore. This is the, the psalmist is talking about no God. Yeah, I, I don't have any room for him. This is the person who pretty much knows God exists, but acts as though he doesn't. Psalm 14 says that person is a fool. There are three Hebrew words that are translated fool in the Bible. This one is the word nabal, which is a word that describes a person who is like a stubborn animal. For 15 years, our family owned a dog whose name was Rascal. She was a sweet girl, a great dog with a generally pleasant disposition. But when we lived in Pennsylvania, that's when we had Rascal, when we lived there, if we were out taking a walk and we came on one of those storm sewers that was covered by a grate in the middle of the road, you, you know what I'm talking about? And, and you got to that, if you tried to get her to walk over that, give it up. She would burrow down like a stubborn mule, and I could lean with all my weight and try to pull her across that, and she was not walking across that storm grate. It just wasn't happening. This is the Nabal. This is the one who's going to do whatever they want to do, and there's nobody who's going to tell them any different or make them do any different. The Bible gives us an account of somebody who had that name. N-A-B-A-L, Nabal. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He's described in 1 Samuel 25, 3 as harsh and badly behaved. David sent some of his men to request help from Nabal, and Nabal's response was, Who is David? I'm not going to help him. He's not getting squat from me. And so David said in 1 Samuel 25, 13, Every man strap on his sword. It was response time. And 400 men went with David to deal with this fool. But Nabal's wife, whose name was Abigail, intervened. She had enough sense to give David what he needed and to prevent disaster from coming to her brutish husband. As soon as she saw David, this is what she said, 1 Samuel 25, 25. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly foolishness is with him. Nabal would eventually die and David would marry Abigail. But Nabal is a living picture of the very fool that David is describing here in Psalm chapter 14. Maybe David was even thinking about Abigail's first husband as he wrote Psalm chapter 14. That's just pure speculation. The scripture doesn't tell us, but it certainly could be true. I said earlier that this fool that's being described here is a person who actually knows God exists but is living as though he doesn't. Why do I say that? Well, remember earlier I told you that Paul actually quotes from this psalm in his argument that he's making in Romans chapter 3. That argument actually goes back to Romans chapter 1. Flip back there in your Bibles if you have that. I want to show you some scripture from Romans 1 where Paul's making several points to show that a person intuitively knows that God is real, that God exists. I, I, I want to consider a couple of them just briefly this morning. First of all, Paul speaks about how general revelation reveals God. Look at, look at what he says in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying, just look around. Just look around. There's, your, there's all the proof that you need right there. Just look around, and you'll see the evidence of God all around you. Now, granted, this general revelation of God in nature isn't enough to bring us to salvation. For that, we need the special revelation of God's Word. We need to know the, the reality of His love, His mercy, His compassion that's all found in Christ in the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, which we will talk about briefly toward the end of this service with communion. We need to know about the atoning work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And, and you simply aren't going to get that from observing the beauty of a sunset, the uniqueness of each snowflake, the consistency of a fingerprint, the immensity of the universe, the microscopic intricacies of the atom, or any of the other amazing realities that we see in God's creation. But those things are certainly enough to reveal the existence of God and to allow anybody to perceive that they are accountable to him. Why, then, would anybody choose to say, no God? There is no God. Well, Paul also speaks in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the verse just prior to these that we looked at, about how human beings apart from God suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, well, let me ask you this. Who knows what dextromorph... I can't ever say that. Dextromethorphan. Dextromethorphan. Who knows what that is? Anybody? A couple of hands, mainly nurses, have their hands going up, know, know what that is. You may not know the term, but I would imagine most of us, if not all of us, have some of it in our house. We could go, I could go to your house and I could probably find some. It's what you will find in Robitussin or, or Vicks or any of a number of other over-the-counter cough suppressants that we often purchase. Now, what do those products do? Do they cure the common cold? Oh, we could wish. There is no cure for the common cold. But those products can, and they do, suppress the cough. They don't take the cold away. They only suppress the symptoms. They only mask the reality that we have a cold. And in the same way, we can suppress the truth and take away any symptoms, if you will, of God in our life. But it doesn't change the reality that he's there, that he exists. Plenty of fools throughout time have suppressed the truth of God. But there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day will be judgment day. And so if you're here today and you are suppressing the truth of God, if you are ignoring the clear revelation that he's given you, don't continue to be like this fool that is described in Psalm 14. I believe that God has brought you here today so that you can repent and so that you can turn to him. But now having considered the fool's perspective of God, let's turn our attention to God's perspective of everybody. Not just God's perspective of the fool, but God's perspective of everybody. And that's the thing that should convict us here. Is that this isn't just God's perspective of a so-called fool. This is his perspective of you and me. This is what he thinks of all of us. Notice the, the inclusive terminology that David uses here in Psalm 14. He uses the term they in verse 1. 
Children, plural, of men in verse 2. Any in verse 2. They have all in verse 3. Together in verse 3. One in verse 3, implying all, and then the word all in verse 4. Indeed, God's perspective seems rather grim. Commentator P.C. Craigie says, The fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. Can I get an amen on that? Verse 2 says that God looks down from heaven in making this estimation. This is reminiscent of Genesis eleven five, where when man was building the Tower of Babel, we read, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. We might also think of Genesis 6, 5, prior to the flood, where Scripture says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. God sees us for who we really are. Listen, you might be fooling everybody around you. You might even be fooling yourself. But you're not fooling God. He knows. He knows who you are. He knows who I am. He knows all of us. He sees. It's important for us to understand today that that apart from the work of God's grace in our life, we're all fools. We all fit this Psalm 14 description to a T. As I noted earlier, Paul quotes from this passage in Romans 3 to make his argument that the, the whole world is guilty before God. There is nobody who can stand before him and say, that doesn't apply to me. I am not a sinner. I am not guilty. I, I can stand confidently before you, God. You can try that, but that argument does, doesn't work. To use theological terminology, we are all totally depraved. But too often we misunderstand what that means. What does total depravity mean? It doesn't mean that we are as wicked as we can possibly be. You know, some people hear that and like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I'm sure that they got some sin in their life, but they're not that bad of a person. I know a lot of people who are worse than them. You know, total depravity doesn't negate the possibility of any kind of relative goodness. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen. He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, the Lord himself affirmed the possibility that even in our fallen state, we can do good things. You know, listen, Hitler did some good things. You know, probably not too many, but, you know, he, he wasn't total evil. You know, we look at people like Hitler and Stalin and Nero and all the utterly deplorable characters throughout history, and we have this concept that, that they were just constantly doing evil. You know, Hitler probably loved his wife. Stalin probably loved his kids. You know, th- th- there were some good things that they did because we can do good things even as fallen, sinful creatures. But that doesn't make us good people. Please don't misunderstand me here. Just because we can do good things doesn't mean we are inherently good in our nature. How many times have we all heard somebody describing another person by saying something like, oh, they they have a good heart? I mean, I've done that. We've all done that. They, They have a really good heart. Well, the truth is, no, they don't. They don't have a good heart. Ultimately, we all have an evil heart. That's what the prophet Jeremiah said. He put it pretty clearly. Jeremiah 17, 9. This is from the King James. I just like the way the King James phrases that. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our heart is desperately wicked. As David said here in verse 3 in Psalm 14, There is none who does good, not even one. Or as Jesus put it 
in Luke 18, 19. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is the only truly good one. We? We are totally depraved. Total depravity simply means that we all have a fallen nature that can't be changed on our own or through our own efforts. It means that every fiber of our being has been tainted by sin. We have no hope apart from the redeeming work of God's grace in our life. Listen, Paul makes this clear when he's writing to the Corinthian church. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the prior work of God's grace in our lives, Paul argues that we don't understand the things of God. They, they don't make any sense to us. And what's more is David argues in Psalm 14 here, not only do we not understand them, we don't care to understand them. We don't want anything to do with the things of God. For most people living as the kind of fool described here, this, this isn't a mental issue in the head. It's a moral problem in the heart. Evangelist Billy Sunday used to say that sinners can't find God for the same reason that that criminals can't find policemen. That's because they're not looking for them. In our sinful, fallen state, we're just not looking for God. We have to have God do a work in our heart and in our life to draw us to himself so that we can respond in faith. We aren't looking for God on our own. That that is, we aren't until life begins to crumble around us. I want you to notice verse 5. It says, there they are in great terror. The NIV phrases it, there they are overwhelmed with dread. How many people begin to, to look to God when life begins to fall apart? I guess it's better to look then not, than not to look at all. But we should begin to look prior to that. But there's an interesting addition to this phrase in Psalm 53. I read it earlier. You probably didn't pick up on it, but if you flip over there, You'll see that it says this. I'll put it up on the screen, actually. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. Now, many of you use the CSB, which is a very good translation. But if you have flipped over to Psalm 53 and you've looked at this verse in that, I want you to notice something. The CSB translators turn this into a further negative rather than the more positive where there is no terror. This is what the the CSB says. Then they will be filled with dread, dread like no other. I reviewed at least 25 translations trying to find out what in the world is going on here. What what is up? And besides the CSB, I only found two other translations I could find that did that. The contemporary English version, version uses the phrasing, you will be terrified worse than ever before. And the New Living Translation phrases it this way, Terror will grip them, terror like they have never known before. But every other translation has it positively like the ESVs, where there is no terror. The NIV says, where there was nothing to dread. The King James says, where no fear was. The New American Standard says, where no fear had been. And and so on with just about every other translation. Now, I'm not sure why the CSB translators took that approach. The vast majority clearly understand it the way the ESV phrases it. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. To be describing the, the, the foxhole conversion mentality, the, the one who says, oh God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll, I'll believe in you and I'll serve you. It all sounds so genuine until the immediate trouble dissipates. And then what happens? 
99.9% of the time, the foxhole converter goes back to their pre-foxhole ways. That kind of faith is not genuine faith. It is just as foolish as saying, no God. It is just as foolish to say, oh God, I'll believe in you if this. And, oh, thank you God, uh, but forget it, you know, thank you for that, but I'm on now. That's not real faith. But there is a kind of genuine faith that exists that leads to hope, that leads to everlasting life. And then that leads us today to our final truth I want you to notice. I want you to see that there is hope for humanity. If we look at these last few verses of Psalm 14, notice that David begins the concluding part there by saying God is with the generation of the righteous. He says in verse 6 that the Lord is his refuge. And in verse 7 we read about the Lord restoring the fortunes of his people. The King James speaks about God restoring the captivity of his people in verse 7. But please don't confuse that with the Babylonian captivity or, or the Assyrian captivity that we read about in the Old Testament. Remember, this is being written by David. And David lived well hundreds of years before either of those events. That's why most modern translations stray away from the use of the term captivity here so that they don't create any kind of confusion in that regard. The Hebrew phrase, restore the fortunes, literally means to radically change circumstances from bad to very good. To radically change circumstances from bad to very good. Now, commentator Warren Wiersbe points out that this is what's going to take place at the second coming. Whenever Jesus returns, defeats his enemies, and establishes his kingdom. And, and, and he's certainly right in that. But I would also contend today that this is what happens for us at the point of salvation. Listen to me, church. If you don't hear anything I say today, I want you to hear what I am about to say. Prior to being saved, prior to salvation, we are in a desperate state. Things are bad. We are, as Paul described to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2.12, separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a desperate situation. If that is true, and it is true of us apart from Christ, we are desperate. We have no hope. We are without God in the world. But verse 13 goes on, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our situation changes radically when we're saved. We go from being without God and without hope in, in, the, in the world to having been brought near by the blood of Christ. We go from a very bad and desperate situation to a very good and hopeful reality. Just like Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the hope for humanity is the cross of Christ. The fool will spend eternity separated from God, but those who have put their hope in Jesus and in his cross will experience salvation and eternal life. Look how verse 7 begins. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Friends, it did. 2,000 years ago, salvation rode into the city of Zion on the back of a donkey. The people recognized Jesus as the Messiah and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then just a few days later, they would cry out, crucify him. 
And all of that was part of God's plan, a plan established before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. The death of Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for your sin. For you are indeed a sinner. I am a sinner. We are all sinners, just as we saw earlier. Going back to verse 3, as it says, there is none who does good, not even one. You and I are all in that group. But God showed his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus died in your place. He took your sin upon himself and he paid the penalty for it. And if by faith and trust in him you will believe, you will find forgiveness. You'll receive everlasting life. This is your only hope. It's the only hope for humanity. And it's a hope that God holds out to you today if you will but receive it. So I ask you today, have you trusted Jesus? Do you know that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And that no one comes to the Father except by him. In 1976, the British astronomer Patrick Moore made an announcement on BBC Radio 2. He said at 9.47 a.m. on the day of the broadcast, there would be a -a once-in-a-lifetime astronomical event that would occur. He claimed that listeners would be able to experience it in their own homes. He said the planet Pluto, in those days Pluto was still considered a planet, I know it's not anymore, uh, but 1976 it was, he said the planet Pluto was going to pass behind Jupiter temporarily causing a gravitational alignment that was going to counteract and lessen Earth's own gravity. He told his listeners that if they jumped in the air at that exact moment of the planetary alignment, that they would experience a strange floating sensation. When 9.47 a.m. occurred, Radio 2 began to receive hundreds of phone calls from listeners who claimed that they had experienced that sensation. One woman even reported that she and her 11 friends had risen from their chairs and they had floated around the room. The date that took place was April the 1st, 1976. You know, friends, it's one thing to foolishly believe something like you can have the ability to temporarily float, but it's another thing altogether to foolishly claim there's no God. I'd rather be the subject of an April Fool's prank like those poor Brits than to be a fool facing the eternal consequences of rejecting God. As R.C. Sproul says in his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, he says, quote, As fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, so the denial of God is the height of foolishness. End quote. May I read it again? As fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, so the denial of God is the height of foolishness. But you don't have to be that kind of a fool today. You can recognize your need of Christ, repent of your sin, and trust him. To do so is the best decision that you will ever make. If you've never trusted Jesus, do so today. I would love to talk with you more about what that means. We're going to uh, experience what brings that kind of salvation in just a few minutes. Uh, Experience it in the sense of, of relive it through the elements of the Lord's Supper. And after this service is over, I'll be down front. And if, if you're here today and you need to talk more about how to have this hope, please find me. Please find Pastor Allen. Please find Brother Jim. Please find anybody. Talk to somebody. And if they can't tell you, they'll find one of us who can. And we will share with you how you can know the hope of eternal life through Christ. 
as I said, that, that salvation I was just describing is vividly pictured in the Lord's Supper. And, and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper today. After we pray, Pastor Allen is going to come and he's going to lead us in that. But let me implore you right now to consider whether you've ever truly trusted Christ. And if you haven't, call out to him right now. Don't wait till even after the service. Call out to him right now. Ask him to save you, and I can promise you this. He will. He will save all who come to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the redeeming work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. We are so thankful that we don't have to remain in our foolish state that we're all in apart from Christ. But we can repent and we can trust in what he did for us on Calvary's cross. And I pray today for any who are here who have never done that, that before this day is over, before this service is over, even before this prayer is concluded, Lord, that they will call out to you and they will place their faith in Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of any who will trust in him. Father, as we gather around your table in these next few minutes, may we truly remember the debt that was paid to call us out of our foolish sin and to call us to salvation in your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.